Today's passage is Psalm 133. It is a short passage, but it's a good one. And it is on page 519 in your P Bibles. If you are interested in flipping there, and I will read it. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Word of the Lord. This morning we are in Psalm 133. It's a short psalm. Um, If you've been with us the last couple of weeks in our uh, study in Mark, Uh, We're in a section of scripture in Mark that's uh, referred to by theologians as the Olivet Discourse. And it's this sort of weird section where Jesus is talking about the future and things that are to come. And there's all this uh, debate and argument about what he's saying there. It's it's a difficult passage of scripture to interpret. And so today we we take a break from that. (laughs) And we have a relatively easy passage of, of scripture to to sit with one that is, the message is fairly clear, but the practice of it is where the challenge comes in. So that's kind of the beauty of of Scripture. So this morning, that's where we're at. And I want to begin with this. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who said, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. My paraphrase of this is, if you find a perfect church, please leave, because because you're going to ruin it. A quick side note, somebody showed me right before the service uh, a quote that I had used in a previous teaching, someone that they know got it tattooed on their body. So I don't don't condone that, I'm not, uh, if you want to, that's cool, but that's not why I share these quotes. (laughs) Now, uh, humor and joking aside, what Spurgeon hits on there I think is a really important truth. It's the truth that church, living in right relationship with each other, the buzzword here, of course, is community. Community is really hard. It's really hard because we're broken, sinful people. And then on top of that, I don't know that there is an area of Christian life that is more burdened by our unrealistic expectations than community. One more quote. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream, listen carefully to this part, he who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of that community even though their intentions may be honest and earnest and sacrificial. So our expectations can actually uh, destroy the very thing that we long for, the kind of connection and relationship that we all desire. Now sometimes these expectations that we have, they come from a past experience. Somewhere back there, we had a really deep, meaningful experience of relationship, and now we're in maybe a new place or a different place, and it's just not quite the same. Others of us, we've only had bad experiences, 
that we bring into a new community with us. And so we have this hope, we have this desire that this community finally is going to be the one that doesn't let us down. Maybe your expectations, they come from uh, your study of Scripture or you've read a book that has captured your imagination. You've got this picture of what true, authentic community looks like in your mind. And you just want your experience of church to look like that. Now, whatever your expectations are, wherever you might come in to regeneration this morning, whether you like it or not, we are all part of the church, and I mean that in the universal sense, not just in in our particular church sense. We're all part of the church once we commit to following Jesus. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. And yes, community is hard. It is a challenge, a great challenge to learn how to live together. But it can also be a source of great beauty and joy. And that is the, the feeling that David in our psalm today wants us uh, to feel, to experience. David writes to open this psalm, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now remember, just real uh, quickly here, we've been, um, in our Psalms study, we've been looking at a particular section of the Psalms, what's, uh, what is known as the Psalms of Ascents. And these were songs that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the three major festivals of the year. They would have been singing these together in community as they made their way up the hill into Jerusalem. And you get the impression that David is observing one of these moments or, or a, a similar kind of moment where all these people are together, worshiping together, and he sort of runs off into his harp room to like lay down this track. <laughs> what he, I'm, I'm sure he had one of those, right? <laughs> now what he beholds here, what is good and pleasant is the unity of all of these people gathered together. And what's interesting is that the kingdom of Israel was as united as it ever would be under David's authority as king. Shortly after he passes away and his kids begin to take over the kingdom, the, the kingdom begins to split and eventually not just to split but to completely disintegrate and be dispersed. It's a fairly unique moment in their, in their history here. But in this moment, David sees and feels this unity. He calls it good and pleasant. And the word good here in the Hebrew is the word tab, which is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1 during creation when God looks at what he has made and he calls it good. We've talked about this fairly extensively, but this is another picture of shalom. We've said shalom is a hierarchy of right relationships that reflect the way God intended creation to function best. God, human beings, humans with each other, and then with the rest of creation. It is good, David says. It is a picture of shalom when we live in right relationship with each other, when we live in unity. Just look at all the exclamation points he uses in this psalm. Now, as nice as all that sounds, it's a very fun verse to quote and to think about. As nice as all that sounds, it doesn't quite 
capture just how awesome this moment is. So David adds two pictures onto this statement, two really interesting metaphors. Look at verse 2. Unity, he says, is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. I'm sure you've come back from vacation or some sort of awesome experience. Someone's asked you how it was and you said, it was like the precious oil on the head. <laughs> it, was, it was like oil running down the beard all over your clothes. That's how good it was. This is a strange picture, right? Let's break this down a little bit. Oil, first of all, was and continues to be a, a symbol of God's presence. It was used in worship ceremonies. It was used to anoint uh, priests. David himself was anointed with oil when Samuel recognized him as the next king of Israel. It's a sign of God's presence with someone. This image, if you take it as a whole, is an image of abundance. Usually when you would anoint someone with oil, you just kind of take a little dab and put it on their forehead. And here it's just getting everywhere, right? Like all over the robes, flowing down. Abundance. And not just abundance, but messy abundance. You can't control this. You can't contain this oil. It's good, but it's going to get all over the place. Kind of like my son eating ice cream. Should be up there on the screen. <laughs> now, the key word here is like. And you just have to go back to freshman English class to remember that this means that this is a simile. So what David is doing here is he's taking two different things and he's making a comparison to help us gain a deeper understanding of what it is. Oh, there it is. <laughs> So what David is saying, you can take that down now. <laughs> what David is saying is unity is like this. It's like the goodness of the oil used to anoint a priest, but instead of a dab on the forehead, it's this gushing flow of abundance that gets everywhere. And it's kind of messy. It's all over the beard, all over the clothes, sort of a funny picture, but it's also awesome and beautiful at the same time. How good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. Verse 3 gives another simile. Unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, another one that I'm sure you use all the time. Now, to understand this simile a little bit better, we need some geographical background. Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, two different mountains in Israel, very different uh, places in the country. Zion is where Jerusalem was located. They're often used interchangeably throughout Scripture. It's the mountain that these pilgrims were ascending as they sang this song and the other Psalms of Ascents together. Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel at about 9,000 feet above sea level. It's the only place in Israel that gets regular snowfall. In fact, you could go there in the winter and ski if you're into that kind of thing. So you can imagine, especially <clears throat> if you've spent any time in, in high elevation places, maybe in the Sierras here in California, that at night it gets cool and there's this collection of condensation, right? There's dew that forms. 
cool, precious water that would not have been as readily available on the more arid desert Mount Zion. So this is kind of a ridiculous analogy. It's not something that would actually ever happen. It's sort of impossible for the dew to get all the way down there to Zion. But it would have been seen as a good thing, a miraculous thing. Water in a dry place, always a blessing. And again, this is what David says unity is like. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on Zion. It's a ridiculous, unlikely, miraculous, awesome, life-giving thing. These are are similes, pictures that would have made sense to the people of Israel, to these pilgrims as they sang these songs. Uh, They don't make a ton of sense to us necessarily. So I don't know what kind of simile gets this point home for you, but think about these ideas of abundance and God's presence. What is unity like? It's like a cup of coffee that never goes empty. It's like a never-ending bowl of peanut M&Ms. It's like... A a child who's put to bed and goes right to sleep and sleeps all through the night. (laughs) Okay, whatever that is for you, I've just revealed a lot about my life. (laughs) Whatever that is for you, whatever image speaks miraculous blessing, surprising grace, ridiculous abundance, David says that is what unity is like. And then if that weren't enough, David ends this song by saying, For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Unity is not just a nice thing to enjoy when it's present in the moment, but it's also a picture of our future. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of what eternal life is going to be like. Now, unity is a word that's getting a lot of play these days because it's something that our world is desperate for. I mean, just think about all the articles and and think pieces that have been written in the last year about just the divisions in our country. Disunity is a massive problem, and it's a massive problem inside the church as well. So what we need to do, I think, for a few moments this morning is, is talk about what unity even means. So we're going to deconstruct this word a little bit, and then we're going to rebuild it from Scripture. And as I do this, just want to make a disclaimer. I'm, I'm sort of using the words community and unity interchangeably here because we're speaking about ideals. So hopefully that alleviates any confusion. So let's start then by talking about what unity is not. First, unity is not uniformity. Unity does not come through walling ourselves off into small homogenous groups where everybody in the group looks like us and sounds like us and thinks like us. This is a very popular option right now. It's very easy to craft a world where you only hear news from your chosen perspective are only challenged by those you already agree with and where it's very easy to silence any dissenting voices. Personally, I see this happen a lot in church circles. It shows up in in theological circles where folks write statements with 12 points and if you disagree with any of those points, you're, you're out. You're on the outside of the community. 
I see this in churches that program themselves down to the point where you have small groups for 29-year-old vegans who surf goofy-footed. <laughs> like, seriously, some of these groups are, are like, crazy <laughs> how specific they are. I made that one up, so if someone wants to start that here, that's fair game. It, 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 ridiculous as it may sound, it just needs to be said, that is not unity. It's good to be with people who you have common interests with and, and share hobbies and things like that, but that is not unity. It's not the moment that David is reflecting on in this psalm, where the whole family of Israel is together. And just think about your own family or family gatherings that you've been a part of, even within those relatively uh, closed groups. There's still a wide variety of opinions and, and disagreements, and there's certain things you can't bring up at Christmas or whatever, right? Now imagine that multiplied over millions. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is also not insular. And this is an impulse that, again, I think is very prevalent inside faith communities. This impulse to turn the focus in on ourselves, it's sort of the us for and no more mentality, is how I would call it. I saw this a lot when I worked with college students. I, I worked with students in Boston, and in the mid-90s in Boston, all of the Christian student organizations were kicked off campus. And they weren't allowed back on until the mid-2000s, which is about the time that I started doing ministry there. And so there, it, to be a Christian college student in Boston is a difficult thing. Not an easy environment. I get that. So there was, again, there, there was this desire among the students that I worked with to have a, a safe space where they could just sort of come in and be with people who believe the same things. They didn't have to be on the defensive anymore and, and they could kind of just relax. And then along comes Steve as their campus minister, saying things like, hey, how can we love our friends and share Jesus with people and kind of get out, out of this space and just totally ruined it for them. <laughs> but I get it. I, I do, I, I think it is a fair, uh, it's a fair desire to have a space where you don't have to be on all the time. That is a good thing. But again, let me say very clearly, that's not true community. Now, you may want to push back on that and say, but Steve, Israel was unique. Israel was set apart, and there's truth to that. Israel was unique and set apart. But it was not so that they could be insular and focused on themselves. Set apart is different from being cut off from. Are you with me? Israel was set apart so that they could be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12, the original call of Abraham, the promise that God spoke over Abraham about the nation that would come from him. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can hang out with only people that you like and are just like you. <laughs> doesn't say that. <laughs> no, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not some of the families, not the ones that you like the most. All families of the earth shall be blessed. This was an, an exclusive call for an inclusive mission. 
Israel's special role within God's redemptive plan was so that those outside of Abraham's family would experience God's blessing, would know who God is, would be able to have right relationship with God and with other people. It was never just for Israel. Now, from time to time, I, <clears throat> I get this question. Why aren't Regen's home groups closed? Why are they open to new people joining? <clears throat> and it, to me, it's real simple. It's because we want to be, our desire is to be a good news, blessing community. Not a closed-off, insular, retreating community. And so we try to model this at, at every level of our church. Now, that being said, there are some things from time to time that are closed. There are classes or trainings uh, or smaller discipleship groups that might be closed, but those are always for a set season and a specific purpose, and that purpose is to equip you, to equip us to do a better job of being a blessing. Blessing our church and our community because true community, unity, does not come by being insular. Finally, unity is not earned. And I've chosen my words carefully here because there are things that we can do to move towards unity, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But again, an, an impulse a lot of times in faith communities is that if we just work hard enough, if we just find the magic formula, the, the three uh, fantastic steps that will solve everything and do them, we can create a sort of utopia, a perfect kind of community. And the hard truth is we're just too sinful and too broken to pull it off on our own. Our efforts at unity are doomed if they are not fueled by God, if they're not given gracefully to us by God. So now let's turn our attention to talking about what unity, what true community is. Unity is reconciling. This is the correlation to uniformity. How do, you, how do you find unity in a diverse community? It's only through reconciliation. To reconcile is to bring harmony to broken relationships, to find congruence between two different things. In financial terms, it means to settle accounts. Reconciliation is not the obliterating of differences into some sort of mass-produced homogenous thing. It's bringing different things together to make something new entirely. And this brings us right to the heart of the gospel. I'm going to read a fairly long passage from Ephesians chapter 2. And we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty here, but uh, I want you to just hear this and hear how, how Paul, who's writing to one of the first churches, talks about the gospel. He says, remember that at one time, he's speaking to a group of people who were not Jewish. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, and circumcision here refers to Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, because we both need it, Jews and Gentiles. We need the good news of the gospel. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Just sit with that for a moment. Okay, this is the gospel that people who were cut off from God and divided against each other can now experience restored relationship with God and with each other. Divisions are healed only through the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross, work that we are called to receive personally, but also to participate in as a community. You will not experience the fullness of the gospel of Jesus if you hang out with people who are just like you. And this is messy, like oil flowing down the beard. But it is miraculous and beautiful, like the dew of Hermon flowing on Mount Zion. Second thing here, unity is missional. Which is to say, community has a goal to which it is aimed. The ultimate goal, David uh, points us to in verse 3 of this psalm. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. David points us to a truth that's further unveiled in the book of Revelation. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. That's a lot of people. From every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. This is the culmination of that call to be a blessing in Genesis chapter 12. Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, worshiping God. This is what heaven is going to look like. And what David in this psalm, Paul in that letter to the Ephesians calls us to do is to model this now. And we may only get glimpses of it because again, we are broken, sinful people. But we aim for this. To borrow Jesus' words here in Oakland as it is in heaven. Again, we try to model this all throughout our church on Sunday mornings and home groups, on our ministry teams. They're driven by this mission of blessing, this mission of reconciliation, this mission of helping people get a taste of the kingdom in Oakland as it is in heaven. One final thought, unity is a gift. Only achieved by grace. The setup to that Ephesians 2 passage says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Unity, this sort of ideal community that David talks about, is something we can work towards and desire, but ultimately it is a gift. Like our salvation, it is not our doing. You'll notice in 
Psalm 133, all the images are descending. Three times David says something is running down, running down, falling on. Unity is a gift that comes from above. It is a grace. I have three challenges for us this morning in response to this. The first is if you're not already involved, get involved in a home group, one of our small groups. Now, just a quick disclaimer, home groups are not the end-all, be-all of community. But I do believe very strongly that they are a laboratory, an incubator of the kind of reconciling, blessing community that we hope to be here at Regeneration. And our groups are in this time of starting a new season, and so this is a great time to join one. All the information about them is available out in the lobby or on, the, uh, on our webpage, or you can talk to me or... Um, some of our other leaders, um, we'd love to let you know more about uh, what they're like and how you can get involved in them. But they are a great place to practice this. And it is challenging. It is messy. I just sat with a group this week that is grieving with some folks in their group who are going through a very difficult moment. And it's gut-wrenching to be that close to people and to grieve with them. But it also was beautiful to see the depth of love and care that that group has for each other. So don't miss out on that. Get involved in a home group. Second, do the hard work of forgiveness. I wish I had more time to talk about this because it's so important. If you live with people, you're going to have conflict. And the only way to move through conflict is to do the hard work of forgiveness. And this is where uh, i got to say... Uh, for me personally, this is, this is the challenge of the message this morning. I grew up in the church, and I've seen just about every nasty, ugly thing that the church has to offer. Uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> just one quick story. My, I've talked about this, I think, a few times. My parents uh, moved us to Salinas in 1985 to plant a church, and my dad was the, the pastor of that church for 27 years. And at about year 24, he started talking about um, retirement and I'm not going to be here forever and, and how, what's a good way that we can do this and move towards um, someone you know, taking over for me when I'm done. And shortly after that, there, there were, there, just to make a very long story short, there was essentially a, a big political maneuver by someone else on staff to get my parents to leave and this person to take over as the lead pastor. It was very painful. And for me personally, it was hard to watch my parents' 24 years of faithful ministry just get dragged through the mud. And for me, one of the things that was really hard was the issue of fairness. How could this story, how could these people who did so many good things for such a long time be treated like this? This is not a good ending to this story. And in my sort of limited perspective, I, I didn't realize that the story wasn't over yet. And in many ways, it still isn't. It's still being written. But even in just the last weeks, my parents have started to receive letters from people who were involved in that. Some of the key players writing them to say, hey, we blew it. And I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And I cannot tell you how profoundly healing even just a simple note of forgiveness can be. The only way to experience true community, the unity that David speaks of in this psalm, is to move through 
this difficult process of forgiving each other. Now, last thing, and as I talk about this, I'll invite the band to come up and uh, begin to get ready for our closing time of worship and communion. When Jesus celebrated this meal that we're about to eat, what we now call communion, he prayed, and it's the longest of his prayers recorded in Scripture. You can find it in John 17. And many of the themes of today's psalm are echoed in this prayer. I just want to read a couple of verses for you to give you a sense of this. Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you, and he's speaking here to the Father, that you take them, them are the 11 disciples seated with them, but throughout the prayer, Jesus makes it very clear that he's speaking about all those who would come after them. So he's really praying for us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, okay, not to be an insular community, but that you keep them, that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here's their mission. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Here's that unity. Even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus does not pray that they become an insular, homogenous, self-focused group. He prays them out into a mission into a mission of blessing and sharing the good news of Jesus. But in order for that mission to work, he prays for their unity, that they may be one. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we get ready for communion. Communion, again, this symbolic meal that we celebrate every week when we gather that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, the lengths that he has gone through through his death and resurrection, that we may be reconciled to him and to each other. Normally, we would enter this time with a moment of self-examination, and we will have time for that here in a little bit. But for the next couple of minutes, what I want us to do is to break up into smaller groups of three to four, or five, whatever. I'm not going to keep track. (laughs) Break up into groups, and for the next handful of minutes, I want us to be praying that we would be a unifying, reconciling, forgiving community we cannot do this simply by trying harder or working through you know the three magical steps to perfect unity we have to pray for it and then we have to receive it as a gift so during this time the band's going to be quietly praying find a couple of people to pray with pray for unity and reconciliation and forgiveness to pervade our church and our community And then um, when the band senses the moment is over, they'll begin leading us again in worship. And during that time, you can come and take communion. So instead of me closing in prayer today, we are going to close in prayer together as a church. Find a couple people to pray with, and then we'll sing and take communion in a little bit.